Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone, and thank you once again for joining us on Word Processing, one of the podcasts of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm joined with the other pastor, Josiah. Hello. This past Sunday, we finished up uh, Matthew chapter 17, with, as you pointed out, the smallest portion of scripture that we've looked at in our study of Matthew. It was only four verses, and yet pretty heavy hitting, perhaps, at times. There was a lot of content involved, so I'm wondering, can you just remind us again of what happened in this passage? Yeah, this is just not long after the transfiguration, and the three disciples and Jesus come down from the mountain, and they see the crowd. Jesus casts out the demon, and now it says they go into Capernaum, and when they're traveling into Capernaum, these tax collectors from the temple come and pursue Jesus and specifically Peter to ask and kind of accuse them of maybe avoiding or looking like they were going to avoid paying this temple tax, this annual tax that Jewish males paid to maintain the services and just the the temple itself. And Peter says, yes, Jesus is going to pay. And then Jesus sees a teachable moment here and he addresses Peter specifically And he says, what do you think, Peter? And he uses a parable and a rhetorical question to say, when we talk about kings of the earth, who do they get their money from? Their taxes and their their levies and all those types of things. Is it from their sons, maybe their princes, their own house? Or it could be translated, understood, their citizens? Or is it from strangers, conquered nations? Where do they get their money from? And again, it's a rhetorical question. And Peter sees that and says, well, obviously, they don't get it from their sons. They get it from strangers. And Jesus says, exactly, that's right. So the sons are exempt or the citizens are exempt. And He's drawing a parallel to himself because this is a tax being levied against them for the temple and Jesus owns the temple. It's his temple. And so he is a son of the owner of the temple. He doesn't have to pay this tax. But then he says, so that we do not offend them, go and pay the money. And how are they going to get the money? Well, Jesus prescribes this miracle word. Peter's going to go fishing and find this fish, the first fish he catches, and it's going to have the exact amount in its mouth. And he's going to go pay for Jesus and Peter. And so that's how he pays the temple tax. Yeah, it's a pretty... Pretty interesting story. Pretty <laughs> yeah. weird. Uh, some weird stuff going on with the fish and and all that. And yet, yeah, it took me more time to recount it right there than to actually read the text. <laughs> yeah, we probably could have just read it. But it's so interesting. Like, I feel like that line of like, so that we do not offend stands out really sharp in the midst of it. And pretty early on in the sermon, you kind of gave us this summary statement that's actually kind of around that that verse. It says, God's people are to avoid unnecessary offense by voluntarily submitting and humbly depending. And we kind of broke that down into the the three parts there. And I thought today maybe maybe go back through a similar breakdown of terms like you did on Sunday. So let's start with this idea of avoiding unnecessary offense. And as you pointed out, Jesus generally didn't mind offending people. He offended often the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders at the time. And yet here something is different. So what's, what's different about this passage? Aside from the fact that Jesus explicitly says, so that we don't offend them, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. His ministry so far has been marked by offense. In fact, he came originally to Israel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, the second part of that, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is very hopeful. But the first part is quite offensive. 
And we saw, and I give a few examples on Sunday about how there's lots of times people are offended by Jesus. And then we come here and he makes a point and inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew makes a point of recording that Jesus says, so that we do not offend them. And so what it was that maybe it was about the temple, maybe it was because it was about money and it doesn't care about that, but that's all speculation. I don't really know, to be honest. Sure. I just know that here, for some reason, Jesus saw a scenario where this offense would have been unnecessary. That's all I know. And so because of that, they he chooses to take a very specific action that does not offend, that doesn't make him a target, perhaps, or doesn't draw even more attention onto him, doesn't, you know, change the rules, so to speak. Yeah, and the fact that he's not wanting to offend is only heightened and elaborated by the fact that he teaches that through that parable and that rhetorical question to Peter. He makes it very clear, listen, I don't have to. He could have just said, so that we don't offend, let's pay them. And that would have been enough. We would have Mm -hmm. said, okay, hey, there's a scenario here where Jesus decides he doesn't want to offend. He thinks this offense is unnecessary. But the verse before in verses, or sorry, in verses 25 and 26, when he goes out of his way to teach about the the kings of the earth and those kinds of things, he's like, so it's even more than just he doesn't want to offend. It's he, he doubles down and says, I don't have to do this. I want everyone to understand that I don't have to pay this tax. I am completely exempt. But so that I don't offend. So it's almost like this double whammy. I don't have to, and I'm not going to offend, even though I uh, am free to not pay this tax. Which is fascinating because, again, as you kind of alluded to there, he could have even not even said the piece about not offending. He could have just said, oh, you're right. Yeah, we haven't paid yet. Here's here's the money. No offense. Or even done the fish thing like, oh, now go find a fish and here's the shekel and we'll pay it. But he specifically uses it as a teaching moment, as you pointed out, because he is really focusing on his 12 and preparing them for what's going to happen after he dies and then ascends. I, I think that's a big part of it, to be honest. We need to understand that he is really pouring into his 12 right now and specifically the 11, as Judas will later leave. But he's pouring into them because he's preparing them for what lies ahead. And all of these lessons in this section of Matthew's gospel, he's using what's happening to them and the, the demoniac and all these things, but he's using them as stages on which he can perform lectures and teaching moments for his disciples. And this is one of those. He doesn't have to do this. He could have, like you said, just said, okay, well, let's pay them. Let's pay them. And that would have been it. But he wants them to understand that there are times when offense is unnecessary and we should go out of our way even though we don't have to to stop from creating unnecessary offense and so jesus of all people does that here and he models it for his disciples who will later have to put into practice especially after he ascends yeah that's exactly what i was thinking is we see just how offensive the gospel is when they are preaching it through the book of acts and Mm -hmm. and through paul's letters even and in that you know first century after jesus had had ascended, how much attention they already brought on themselves just by preaching about Jesus. They didn't need to go out offending in all these other ways as well. Yeah. So at the very least, we come to this passage and we say, okay, there are scenarios where even Jesus says offense is unnecessary in this moment. Not all offense. Some offense is totally necessary and unavoidable, but there are areas. And our job is now to figure out, okay, what are those areas? When is it wrong or harmful to offend, to add offense to an otherwise offensive message that we bring. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to ask the question, perhaps on the opposite side now, as we switch into the topic of voluntary submission, which I'd argue is probably the heaviest hitting, given this cultural moment that you even talked about on Sunday of, you know, standing up for personal rights and freedoms, among other things. I'm wondering, how do we discern if there are times that we ought to stand up for our rights? So there are times that it's 
worth offending for things perhaps other than the direct gospel, you know, stand up against overreach or injustice or all these big terms that are being tossed around a lot right now, and when to voluntarily submit to avoid unnecessary offense. How do we discern that? Yeah, I want to be careful, especially on a disembodied recording like this. Sure. I'm not going to prescribe of course. for an individual believer. So conscience obviously has Definitely. to play a huge piece in this. Make sure you're walking with the Lord and prayerfully trying to discern when is a time to lay down your sword and when's it a time to jump into the fray. I think there are some general principles that can help us along the way though. First, I think I said on Sunday and I stand by it that our default posture as believers should be one of submission. Mm-hmm. That's default. Left to ourselves, we should be a submissive people. And the exception should be going against, not the other way around, which I feel like is probably our default today. You're not going to take away from me that which I think is my freedom and my right to do so. And then the exception will be to submit. I really think it should be the other way around. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. So again, we're not submitting to people for their sake because they are owed it, because they have earned some sort of submission. No, it's for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. So we're supposed to submit to all of these authorities as unto the Lord, not because they are owed those things, right? So again, that is our default posture. Whether it's to civil authorities, we should be a submissive people. Spouses, teachers, elders in a church, I feel like a lot of times today, our default position is skepticism or cynicism when looking at authority. Anyone in authority. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have my my best interests in mind. And they may not. But as Christians, our default posture, I think, is supposed to be one of submission to parents. And that's been flipped on its head recently, right? This, mm-hmm. this idea that children are supposed to submit to their parents, uh, submit to police, to other Christians in Ephesians 5 verse 21, uh, submit to employers. That is supposed to be our default. So when we start thinking about this issue I want to lay the groundwork first and just say, I think that we need to, in my heart, I want to make sure that my default is one of submission. And then if I buck against that, if I rebel or disobey in some way, that is always the exception. I need to have a good reason to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think so. It it really seems to be, again, as you said from the very beginning, this is dependent on our walk with the Lord. And probably just to rehash what you just said, that standing up against submission should be the exception, not the rule. It should be something that we should really feel very strongly mm-hmm. led by the Lord or be very much asking for his wisdom and discernment and defaulting towards, as you said, I think in the past, doormat living in some ways. I think I hear a lot of voices out there today conflating courage and bravery with standing up to authority. And that's, those things certainly can go together at times, but I think it takes just as much courage and bravery to lay down an authority that we know we have, to lay down a right that we know we have, to lay down a power that we know we have for the sake of not unnecessarily offending mm-hmm. in the ways that we don't need to offend. And I think, honestly, we see this model, and you got to be honest, we see this model. Like People who would disagree with me on this would have to agree that Jesus modeled this. He had all authority. He had... Uh, the most authority there is the most power, the most right to not lay down his authority, and he did anyway. Paul, the apostles, that is their default mode. And so we have good company when we strive to do that as well. So the question becomes, okay, what are the reasons then to rebel? What are the reasons to stand up to tyranny, to oppression, all those kinds of things? If our default posture is to be one of submission, when are the times to step out? 
And first, we have to acknowledge, definitely, if we're being called too explicitly sin. sin. Yes. It has to be, right? Acts 4 is that famous passage that has been brought up several times over the last couple of years where the apostles say, listen, we've got to obey God rather than man. Mm -hmm. The thing that we often leave out there is what they're being called to do by God and what they're being forbidden to do by the government. They're in direct opposition. So Acts chapter 1, go be my witnesses, Jesus says to them. Acts chapter 4, you must not be his witnesses. And they say, sorry, like we've got to obey God. That's a direct, explicit call to sin. Some of the things that I see Christians today talking about as sin, that the government's causing them to sin. I don't know. It seems a bit of a stretch to me, to be honest. Maybe, maybe not. Again, I'm going to leave that to the Christian conscience. But if we are called to sin against the Lord, if we are called to directly disobey something that he's calling us to do, then it is incumbent upon us because we are submitting as unto the Lord. Yes. You know, we're submitting, even when I submit to civil authorities or my teacher or whatever, my boss, whatever the case may be, I'm submitting to them not because they have earned it, but because I'm submitting to the Lord first. And so if the Lord says, do this, and my employer says, no, you must not do that, that's a time when we would not submit to them. In other words, we would submit to the Lord instead. So sin has got to be one of them. Mm-hmm. One other reason I can see that we could rebel or disobey authorities put sure. over top of us would be if we see someone being harmed that is in our care. Because if I can see someone being harmed and that's our reason to rebel, I can make a case for that anywhere, really. But if they're directly in my care, so my children, for example, or my church family or something like that, where they are being harmed, I think we can step in to help them, to care for them in some way. So if the government says, you know, you must not teach your children X. Mm-hmm. And my responsibility before the Lord, first and foremost, is to disciple these children, to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And the government is saying, you cannot teach them acts. I'm sorry, I must obey God for their safety, for their good. I have to do those things. So very much connected to the first reason of sinning. But I think we can care for the the vulnerable that are placed under our care. And we, we have a responsibility to do that. But again, watch our conscience. The default mode is supposed to be one of submission. And rebelling is supposed to be the exemption. Yeah, and I think all of this kind of falls under this umbrella of the fact that as we submit, it requires us to have a certain posture of trust before the Lord because we have no choice in that case, which really leads us into that last kind of topic you brought us to on Sunday, which is the idea of humbly depending, really pointing to the fact that when we voluntarily submit, it's not as though we're pulling out of the situation necessarily or quitting entirely, but we are instead relying on God to meet our needs in whatever that situation is, even if it's one that we want to stand up for or one that we feel that inner kind of pull towards fighting against by submitting we're saying i trust god with this more than myself what might this look like practically and why do you think this can be so difficult for us to trust god in this way i'd first again point to the models that we see in scripture oftentimes we see jesus entrusting himself to the father's care the apostle paul as well counts it all loss for the sake of christ he's entrusting himself to the care because they would undergo some severe persecution and pain and loss as they submitted to the people around them. Uh, for us today, you know, you can do a one-to-one correlation almost with our passage, you know, paying taxes and paying what we're owed to the governments and th- certain things. Those are can be moments of trust where will we be able to afford living if we continue to pay what we're owed? And so then we have a battle. Like, I am called to provide for my family, but I am also being demanded to pay these taxes. I'm going to have to trust the Lord to provide for us. It's just a very one-to-one correlation, I guess, with our passage that we looked at on Sunday, that we're entrusting ourselves and the resources we need to survive into the Lord's 
hands and trusting and just saying he's going to have to come through. I'm going to humbly depend on the Lord. I'm going to step out in faith and submit to the authorities that he has put in place. Same thing if the government says, comes along and says, you can no longer preach the gospel. You know, we will have to submit to God rather than the government. In that case, we'll have to go around the government. We'll have to rebel. And we're going to have to trust that when the axe falls, when the consequences come, we will be like the apostles in Acts and, and take our lumps. We will say, we will take those joyfully at times, depending on the Lord to provide for us, whatever the case may be. That's a tough thing to do. Mm-hmm. To think about the last couple of years, there have been moments where we had to trust the Lord. We know and we are convicted. Hebrews 10 would be one place that outlines and highlights the need for us to be together as believers. Do not forsake the gathering together. Why? Because it's edifying. There's something healing and protecting about being with God's people. There's a grace involved there, not because we need it to be saved or anything like that, but because we need the body of Christ. We need to serve one another. We need to meet each other's needs. We need to encourage one another. And when we're apart from that, for any amount of time, that harms us. And so then during some times when restrictions fall and we cannot gather together, do we push forward and rebel or do we trust ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, this grace that we're lacking by being together, we're going to have to ask that you bridge that gap, that you give us an extra measure of grace to heal those who would normally need the body to heal them, that you would teach those who normally need the gathered body to teach them. Lord, you're going to have to come through by the power of your Holy Spirit because we're going to entrust ourselves to you here. We're going to have to humbly depend on you because we are being told to forego something that we desperately need, that you've told us we need. And yet we want to submit also to the governing authorities that you put in place. So that's a tricky thing. And different churches have come down differently on that issue. But that was one place where we as as leadership of Oak Ridge decided we're going to entrust ourselves to the Lord. We're going to humbly depend on him to cover this gap that we are missing because we acknowledge that Again, some churches are probably still not meeting. And for us, we said, that's too far. We can't do that. We're not going to go further than what we're being required to, but we're going to do what we're asked to do and depend on the Lord and work hard to be used by him. So just a couple of examples of how we're depending upon the Lord there. Yeah, I think so much of it sounds like a struggle with our inner desire for control. It could be. In some ways, like we want to... It can be, I know for myself, hard at times to think of God coming through. It, the hardest part about trusting God is we don't always see or recognize his hand when it's in, in motion. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to, with our human fallenness, to put it on ourselves and say, well, I could wait for God or trust in him. But in the meantime, I can, here's what I can accomplish. Here's all the things that I want to do. And, and we want to, as I like the phrase that you often use, which is white knuckle our way through things and try and accomplish it in our own strength. And this really is a call to say, I'm going to let go of those white knuckles. I'm going to let them soften up. I'm going to drop whatever I'm holding and truly trust in the Lord if that's what's required here. Part of it too is we need to be honest with our self-assessment, know our own hearts and know our propensity for idolatry and self-deception. As I think I mentioned on Sunday, I know the default of my heart is not one of submission. I know that the default of my heart is to not enjoy being told what to do. And I am, by God's grace, perhaps clever enough that I can figure out a way to biblically justify my rebellion, the rebellion of my heart. You know, I don't like being told what to do. I'll find a verse that gives me permission to rebel. Just knowing that that about myself gives me pause, at least just pause to sit back. And with this passage, you know, Matthew chapter 17 before me, just ask the Lord, spend some time with him and say, Lord, is there some idolatry of personal autonomy at work here? Is this 
an offense I'm about to cause to who knows who, my family, my friends, my church family, people online, whatever the case may be, am I adding unnecessary offense here? I, I don't know. That's, that's some work I'm going to have to do with the Lord. But knowing myself and knowing which way I commonly err is sometimes helpful for me to buffer against my my sin. Taking that time to even to just think through what are the things that I have that instinct that I want to push back and what are the things that are easy for me to give up? And perhaps is there a, a bit of a disconnect there? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it comes down to our understanding of scripture and scripture's role too. Am I going to use it like a, a wax nose and bend it any way I want to make it support whatever I want it to support? That's called eisegesis, reading into a text or into the text what we want it to say. You know, we don't like what the government is saying. We don't like what the elders are saying. I don't like blank, what my teacher is telling me to do. And and so then I will go into the text and find a place where I can say, ha ha, see, you know, Josiah 3.16 says, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have to do this. And so is it always illegitimate? No. As, as we've talked about today, you know, there is time to step around the commands of authority in place and challenge authority. Absolutely. We just want to be cautious. Just to wrap us up here, Josiah, all of this falls under the statement of the fact that the gospel is offensive enough for itself, mm-hmm. as we talked about on Sunday And one of the things, the big things that we're discussing is really not adding to our offensiveness at the risk of harming the gospel truth going out, which to me sounds like an old school kind of church discussion on our witness and what it means to be able to share the gospel and and what gets in the way of that. Yeah. This has been clouded lately, I think, with a misunderstanding of the purpose of the Christian and the purpose of the church in this world today. Hmm. I think when we start misunderstanding what my task is in this world, that it is not only Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, but it is to make disciples of all nations, to bring the gospel to people, and to make their lives on earth better. Uh, When I confuse those two things or put those on equal plane, then all of a sudden, one of them is going to lose out, and it's going to be the gospel. Do we want to make people's lives better? Sure, if we can. But ultimately, we want to make their eternity better. (laughs) We're called to bring the gospel to people, not to kingdomize this world or make this world better. We're also not to throw this world away. Sure. But our primary calling is to bring the gospel message to people who are lost, who are perishing. And that's the role of not only the individual Christian, but also the church. We are to make disciples. We are to evangelize, bring them into the church to be nurtured and equipped and, and then send them out to make disciples. But when the church and when Christians start bringing in this idea of we're to make this a Christian nation or win back Canada for Christ or whatever the case may be, that starts driving our methodology and our passions. And that's when we can start attaching rebellion to things that we don't need to rebel against because they're not quote-unquote gospel issues. And again, I'm not making a blanket statement about anything here. I'm just saying these are things we need to think about, that we always need to come back. What is our main calling? What is the main calling? It is to bring the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ to people who don't know it. Everything else is bonus and everything else is byproduct of that main task. And so if that task is in itself offensive, and it will be, that I don't need to add offense to that one task. And it's actually counterproductive to add offense to that. And it's unfaithful to mm-hmm. add offense to that task. And Jesus, in our text this week, he saw a case where adding offense was unnecessary. And we just need to step back and spend some time with the Lord and say, are there ways that I am not following his lead? And am I actually adding offense to my one calling? And I think 
that is shown perfectly in the fact that, again, as we say, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what their eventual tasks and goals will be. And he brings us up now, not earlier, but he brings it up now as he's preparing to die, preparing to then teach them and then go back into to heaven. And what is their job going to be? It's to take out the gospel. And he's preparing them for what that is going to look like here. Yeah. And are we to call people out for sin, especially within the church? And that's offensive for sure. Are we to call a culture out on sin? Uh, maybe. It depends. You know, can they even listen without a regenerate heart anyway? They need the gospel first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And so we need to keep our main task, our main task. Yeah, Paul has some stuff to say about that in First Corinthians for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Josiah, a very interesting podcast today coming out of an interesting sermon. And uh, we're taking a couple weeks away from Matthew, I think, at Oak Ridge for the next couple Sundays. So I'm excited to see where that leads us in our conversation over the next couple weeks as well. Listener, again, thank you for being with us. And until next time, go with grace and peace. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.